It was dark, but dawn was not far away when Ernst Lehmann steered his Zeppelin airship past the Cathedral of Our Lady. Until recently, the sighting of an airship would have attracted great crowds. But tonight, people were huddled in their homes, and the only spectators were the military night watchmen. The low hum of the engine and the sound of the propellers were barely audible at ground level. But the people below would soon be alerted to the presence of the airship in the most horrifying manner possible. Buildings were destroyed and 10 people were killed as Lehman's crew dumped a crude rack of explosives and incendiary devices off the Zeppelin. Under the Hague Convention, the people of Antwerp had been subjected to a war crime. But in the late summer of 1914, this event, while eye-catching as the first aerial bombardment of civilians, was a minor detail when compared to even more heinous acts that occurred during the so-called Rape of Belgium. Two decades later, Ernst Lehmann would make bigger headlines when another airship he was on, while in very different circumstances, was also involved in a scene of death and devastation. In this episode, I explore the Hindenburg disaster, an event that is much more complicated than a simple mishap. It's a tale of ingenuity, political pressure, ambition, foolhardiness, miraculous survival, and tragic loss of life. On the 5th of May, 1937, radio journalist Herbert Morrison and sound engineer Charles Nelson of WLS Radio flew from Chicago on an American Airlines flight that took them to Lakehurst Naval Base in New Jersey. Their assignment was simple, record a narrative of an airship landing for later broadcast. For a modern comparison, it would be like a journalist reporting on the launch of Jeff Bezos' space tourism flights. It was a feel-good story, one to break up the monotony of the dire stories about the ongoing Great Depression. Morrison's own experience as a pilot meant he had more of an interest in the story than many of his colleagues, and his report began with him lauding the relatively new airline that had brought him safely to New Jersey. When we landed at Newark, we found another flagship of American Airlines waiting to take us to Lakehurst with our equipment when we were ready to go. And incidentally, American Airlines is the only airline in the United States which makes connections with the Hindenburg. But within a few minutes, a mildly interesting event turned into a horror show. All the humanity and all the fans are just feeding around here. I don't do it. In hindsight, it's easy to find fault with the notion of traveling in a giant balloon filled with highly flammable hydrogen. But the engineers who built the craft were well aware of the dangers, and they'd gone to great lengths to minimize the risks. In fact, the petrol in your car is potentially more explosive than the gas in the airship. So what went wrong? For answers, we have to look back at the history of airships. An 18th century Italian Jesuit priest, physicist and mathematician, Francesco Lana del Terzi, is credited with developing the idea of a ship that could float courtesy of four copper spheres from which air would be evacuated to create a vacuum and buoyancy. Many others in Brazil, France and Germany 
soon developed his primitive concept. But the airship as we really know it came to the fore in the early 20th century, courtesy of the German Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin. In 1909, he launched the world's first commercial airline, and despite some high-profile crashes and mishaps, by 1914, over 10,000 people had safely flown on one of his crafts over the course of 1,500 flights. During the war that followed, Zeppelins were adopted by the army and used for bombing raids across Europe. This enabled people like Ernst Lehmann to hone their skills as pilots. But with the First World War over and von Zeppelin dead, Hugo Eckner, a man with a background in psychology and the military, took control of the Zeppelin company. He felt the airship was better suited to commercial rather than military use. But with the Western Allies having seized Germany's existing airships as reparations for World War I, Eckner raised funds in the private sector for the development of a larger passenger craft. In 1928, he piloted the Graf Zeppelin on what was the world's first transcontinental flight. Having landed at Lakehurst Naval Station, Eckner was rewarded with a ticker tape parade in New York. He became hugely popular in Germany and even considered running for president until Paul von Hindenburg decided to run for another term in 1932. His motivation for considering a political career was his opposition to the Nazis. And this fact almost led to his arrest until von Hindenburg intervened on his behalf. But despite his well-publicized dislike of the Nazis, Eckner went to the Nazi regime cap in hand in 1933, when financial problems had seen development of the new airship, the LZ-129, grind to a halt. Joseph Goebbels, Hitler's propaganda minister, saw the potential in the massive airship as a symbol of German power. Hermann Goering, having seen its use in World War I, was eager to see the technology further developed for potential military use. Both men provided millions of Reichmarks to Eckner, who continued to work on what was to become the gold standard in passenger travel. The new class of airships were named after von Hindenburg, the late president whose powers Hitler had effectively seized. While Zeppelins had a good safety record to this point, alarm was raised about the use of highly combustible hydrogen when the British airship R101 crashed and exploded, killing 48 people. It was decided that the Hindenburg would be flown with helium, an inert gas, rather than combustible hydrogen. But helium was hugely expensive, and the cost was felt more so during this period known as the Great Depression. To address this issue, the designers proposed having an interior section filled with hydrogen divided from an exterior that was filled with helium. But this still required huge amounts of the gas, and the only large-scale producers of helium were in the United States. Having requisitioned Germany's airships after World War I, Congress had passed the Helium Control Act of 1927 to limit the export of the precious gas. Despite their best efforts, the Germans were unable to negotiate the relaxation of this law and adjustments were made to make the LZ-129 a hydrogen vehicle. The structure was made of duralumin, an aluminium alloy. The engines were provided by the Daimler-Benz company, while architect Fritz Brehaus, 
a veteran cruise line designer, was tasked with constructing the passenger quarters. His design comprised of two decks. The A deck had 50 two-person cabins in the centre, flanked by a dining room on one side and a lounge and writing area on the other. Both sides of the craft also had viewing promenades, where guests could peer out of huge windows. The metal ladders used to access the top bunks in the cabins may not seem luxurious compared to modern cruise ships, but the sleeping accommodations compare very favourably to modern aircraft. The lower deck contained the cruise quarters, shared bathrooms, a bar, and perhaps surprisingly, a smoking room. Mindful of the risks, the smoking room was only accessible through an airlock from the bar. Passengers were forced to surrender their own matches and lighters before boarding, so cigarettes could only be lit by an installed electric lighter. Since airships were slow moving, flying them was more comparable to steering a sailship than an airplane. Consequently, pilots like Eckner and World War I bomber Ernst Lehmann were typically recruited from the Navy. Eckner had a reputation as a no-nonsense individual, and he despised incompetence. He was also keenly aware that safety was of paramount importance, as any accident involving an airship was likely to be a high-profile event. Consequently, the Zeppelins didn't fly in bad weather for fear of lightning strikes, among other things. But safety was the least of the Nazi regime's worries. With swastikas emblazoned on the tails, Joseph Goebbels saw the propaganda value in having the massive airships prominently displayed at political rallies. In March of 1936, Ernst Lehmann skipped the required safety tests in order to meet Goebbels' demand for the ship to appear in its event. Eckner was incandescent and scolded Lehmann for his recklessness and his desire to participate in what Eckner called a shitstorm. Goebbels overheard the rebuke and it further convinced him that Eckner was an enemy of the Nazis and consequently an enemy of the state. He proposed banning Eckner's names from news reports and effectively making him persona non grata. Desperate to save his career, Eckner sent a groveling letter to Hermann Goering and managed to convince him that his attack on Lehman was entirely safety related and thus apolitical. He received a reprieve, but from this point on he was marginalised and involved in the Zeppelin projects in name only, while the more malleable Lehman was left to run the show. Lehman was 20 years younger than the Austrian-born Eckner, and in contrast to his counterpart, he was a bon vivant. He loved music, he was a skilled pianist and accordion player, and in fact, he often left his airships in the control of his deputies while he entertained guests with renditions of Wagner favourites. In 1929, Lehman had explored the possibility of emigrating to America, but ultimately, his effective promotion over his erstwhile mentor and now rival Eckner saw him stay in Germany. Lehman has often been cast as a Nazi, in contrast to the anti-fascist Eckner. But with the Nazis in power, and Lehman seemingly keen to follow their every command, he never actually registered as a Nazi, something that distinguishes himself from many of his contemporaries. Was he ideological aligned with Hitler, and just never got around to formalising it? Or was he just an opportunist, an amoral yes-man, 
who cozied up to Nazis with the same reckless abandon that he'd broken the Hague Convention with when he bombed innocent civilians in Antwerp. The debate about his character rages on, but while he was not around to see the horrors of the Holocaust, he, like every German, was well aware of the anti-Semitic Nuremberg laws, and there's nothing to suggest he ever felt any discomfort about the persecution of the Jews. Having spent its maiden flight dropping pamphlets to promote the Nazi militarization of the Rhineland, the craft made its first commercial flight in 1936. The destination was Rio, and Goebbels ensured that Lehman, rather than Ekner, was the pilot. Ten trips to the United States followed, and its first year of operation, the Hindenburg covered a quarter of a million kilometers without incident. The following year, after some alterations had been made, which included removing the grand piano to reduce weight, the Hindenburg made another trip to South America. On May the 3rd, 1937, the Hindenburg was scheduled to make its next trip to America, but just two weeks beforehand, Ernst Lehmann suffered tragedy when his young son died on Easter Sunday. It's been suggested he was reluctant to make the next Zeppelin trip, on which he was supposed to be an observer rather than a pilot. But seemingly under pressure, he agreed to board the flight piloted by Max Pruss. The flight to America was far from full, with just 36 passengers on board, but the proposed return flight was much more lucrative for the Zeppelin company. It was sold out as dozens of people were eager to get to Europe for the upcoming coronation of King George VI of England. He descended to the throne after the abdication of his brother, Edward VIII. The majority of the passengers were German nationals or ethnically German. For example, Hermann Dona, born in Prussia, was a Mexican citizen who ran a German drug company in Mexico City. He'd gone to Germany on business with his wife and three of his children. Having flown on an airship once before, he thought it would be a fun experience for the kids to fly on one. The donors stayed in the family cabin on B-Deck that had been installed during upgrades over the previous winter. His wife was nervous about the flight, but his son Werner, aged eight, was amazed at the size of the craft when the family were given access prior to boarding. Another German-born passenger was acrobat Joseph Spar. He was a well-known performer who'd been touring Europe, but was making his way back to America to take up a residency at Radio City in New York. He'd originally planned to travel by steamboat, but having missed the departure, he bought a ticket on the Hindenburg, and he was accompanied by his pet dog. Among the non-Germans was Englishman George Grant. He worked for a travel firm who, among other things, sold tickets for the Hindenburg. The journey went smoothly, though slowly, as strong headwinds from the Gulf Stream meant the airship was travelling at about 50% of its maximum speed. It eventually reached Boston on the 6th of May, but Captain Max Pruss was advised of thunderstorms in New Jersey, so he took the airship on a detour over New York City. It was a bizarre moment. As the passengers rushed to get up a close-up view of the Empire State Building, on the streets below, feelings were mixed. On one hand, crowds rushed into the street to see the Zeppelin, but few could overlook the swastika on its tail. At this time, New York Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia was arguably the most outspoken critic of Hitler 
in the Western world. His mother was Jewish-Italian, and he, like many American Jews, had been outraged by the Nuremberg Laws. Just over a year earlier, when American protesters tried to rip a Nazi flag off a vessel in the city, he'd rebuffed German complaints by pointedly explaining that the police officer who had stopped them was named Solomon, a Jewish name. Meanwhile, Max Pruss was eager to land as quickly as possible. He was determined to have the quickest turnaround ever of a Zeppelin flight. And at around 7pm, the Hindenburg made its final descent towards Lakehurst Naval Station. It attempted a so-called high landing, dropping ropes from a great height, with the intention of being winched down to reduce the number of landing crew needed to facilitate its descent. But wind conditions forced the captain to make two sharp turns. Moreover, the vehicle wasn't level, despite dropping ballasts of water. At around 7.20pm, while just 90 metres above the ground level, the airship dropped its ropes. As the ground crew raced to grab the lines, it began to pour with rain. Witnesses on the ground reported seeing blue flashes on the port side. One of those on the ground was the WLS radio journalist Herbert Morrison, and he described the events as they unfolded. Well, here it comes, ladies and gentlemen. We're out now, outside of the hangar, and what a great sight it is. A thrilling one. It's a marvelous sight. It's coming down out of the sky, pointed directly towards us and toward the mooring mast. It's practically standing still now. They've dropped ropes out of the nose of the ship. It's starting to rain again. It's, the rain had uh, cracked up a little bit. The back motors of the ship are just holding it uh, just enough to keep it from... It's burst into flames. Get it, Charlie. Get it, Charlie. It's fighting and it's rising. It's rising terrible. Oh, my. Get out of the way, please. It's burning and bursting into flames and, and it's falling on the mooring bass and all the folks between that this is terrible. This is one of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's... it's Four or five hundred feet into the sky, and it, it's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen. The smoke and the flames now, and the flame is crashing to the ground, not quite to the mooring mast. All the humanity and all the passengers speeding around it. I don't do it. Honestly, it's just like there are masses smoking wreckage, and everybody can hardly breathe and talk and screaming. Lady, I, I, I'm sorry. Inside the ship, many of the passengers were in the dining room as the tragedy unfolded. Among them was Englishman George Grant. He later recalled being thrown into a heap of tables as the ship seemed to disintegrate. Getting back to his feet, he urged his fellow passengers to jump through a celluloid window, and he did so himself. He survived a 20-foot fall, although he then broke his ankle as another escaping passenger crash-landed on him. Meanwhile, acrobat Joseph Spar, who'd also been in the dining room, and was filming the ship's descent, jumped out of a window and attempted to make a safe landing before hitting the deck and having to be carried to safety by a member of the ground crew. Spar's wife and three kids who had come to greet him witnessed the horror of the airship firsthand. The Donor family weren't so lucky, having been thrown across the dining room like so many others. Mrs. Donor threw her older son Walter to safety through a broken window. Werner, the eight-year-old who'd been so impressed by the craft, quickly followed. But her daughter Irene was in a panic. She was too heavy for her mother to lift, and she refused to leave until she had found her father. In the confusion, he'd become lost, possibly having returned to his cabin. Irene refused to leave without her father, and ran back into the fiery inferno 
leaving her mother no choice but to save herself and jump from the window. Father and daughter were both killed. Among the other survivors were pilot Max Pruss and Ernst Lehman. Though the latter was severely burned, he was rushed to hospital with doctors feeling confident he would survive. Immediately after the crash, he hinted to Naval Commander Charles Rosendahl that the crash was due to sabotage. But shortly after, his condition deteriorated and he passed away. Of the 36 passengers and 61 crewmen aboard, 35 died, but miraculously, the rest survived. The hydrogen fire which destroyed most of the airship only lasted for about 90 seconds, but diesel from the engines ignited and caused a secondary fire that lasted for several hours once the remnants of the Hindenburg had hit the ground. There was initially no question as to what had fueled the huge fire, hydrogen. But to this point, the Zeppelin had a stellar safety record. So the real question was what caused the hydrogen to ignite. Hugo Eckner was in Graz, Austria when the airship crashed. He immediately concluded that saboteurs were responsible. He publicly claimed that threats had been received from unknown individuals who said they planned to destroy the airship in the months leading up to the crash. Given its status as a symbol of Nazi rule, there was no shortage of potential saboteurs. In the years preceding, the Antifa group, made up of individuals who later formed the East German communist regime, had been involved in terror attacks and assassinations. The Germans' persecution of the Jews caused some people to speculate that militant Zionists may have been involved. Charles Rosendahl, the commander at Lakehurst, was another proponent of the sabotage theory. There were suggestions that a sniper could have shot the airship, that a bomb may have been planted on it, and even more outrageously, some suggested New York Mayor LaGuardia had ordered a police airplane to shoot it down. Of the speculative theories, the investigators initially homed in on the idea of a bomb being stowed on board. And German-born acrobat and US citizen Joseph Spar was the prime suspect. Survivors pointed to his strange behaviour, frequent trips to the freight area, his apparent aloofness and his disinterest in the flight. But both of these odd allegations can be easily dismissed. His dog was stowed in the freight area, so naturally he made occasional visits to check on it. Although it is true that he was scolded for going there on occasion without permission from the crew. And if, as alleged, he was so uninterested in the airship, then why was he using a film camera to record his journey at the precise moment it erupted? The other issue of Spa was that he'd supposedly refused to submit his luggage to inspection upon boarding. But again, this is untrue. As a stage performer, he made some mocking remarks about the officious inspectors, but his luggage was indeed searched, and obviously nothing of interest was found. Regardless of this, the captain of the stricken airship, Max Pruss, maintained throughout his life that Spa was the saboteur, but both German and American investigators quickly eliminated Spar as a suspect. A later theory pointed the finger at crew member Eric Spiel, who supposedly planted a bomb as an act of solidarity with his allegedly communist girlfriend. But again, despite a vague motive, there is zero evidence to back up this theory, 
Hermann Goering, who by this time saw the future of air travel in planes rather than airships, explained the disaster as simply an act of God. Eckner himself reversed course and came to believe that Hindenburg was destroyed due to something other than malfeasance. He concluded that the fire was caused due to a build-up of static electricity, something that occurred as a result of passing through a weather system with high electrical charge. The wet ropes from the craft grounded the frame, but not the skin containing the hydrogen. This would have caused a spark that was witnessed from the ground. Others suggested a lightning bolt may have hit the vents as combustible hydrogen was being released and mixing with oxygen. The engine backfiring and creating sparks due to Max Pruss's sharp turn was another theory. It was also suggested his sharp turns may have put the aircraft under stress and caused a puncture in its skin. Even the fuel for the fire has been called into question by some, with suggestions the skin contained highly flammable elements and that this, rather than the hydrogen, caused much of the fireball. But with the limitations of science in the era, and limited film footage provided by four camera crews on the ground, no explanation for the disaster has been accepted by all parties. But the overwhelming consensus is that some kind of technical issue was to blame. But a few conspiracy theorists continue to tout the sabotage theories. <laughs>